CPR remains the single most important intervention for patients with cardiac arrest. What is high quality CPR? 2020 hasn't been a good year for us, nor does it appear to be a good year for ultrasound and CPR. It's not like everybody has to die with a plastic tube in their trachea. There's a new link in the adult chain of survival. Everybody in the room wants to jump out of their skin. Welcome back to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. Mike Winters here from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. So happy that you are joining us for this podcast here in the middle to late November timeframe. I hope all of you are having some plans for the upcoming holiday. And certainly, I think everybody is going to be impacted by the market rise and surge again in COVID cases. And so I anticipate that most of you will be spending the time, a lot smaller crowd, perhaps limited really to those in your household, but nonetheless, it is a special time of year, and we've had a very challenging 2020, and certainly for those of us that have continued to navigate this on the front lines, as all of us here listening to this podcast, I'm so thankful that you're there. I'm so thankful for your courageousness in showing up every day and taking care of these COVID patients. Well, to get started on the podcast with our topic, before we do so, let me bring in my amazing co-host here, Dr. Peter W., Dr. Rob Rodriguez, and Dr. John Greenwood. Peter, how are you doing this podcast? Doing great. We haven't seen the sharp rise that the rest of the country has in COVID this time around, so we're still hovering below 20 patients in our hospital, so I'm thankful for that for the moment. That is good news. Now, I know here in the Northeast... I suspect John and I have had market rises in our cases, but John, how are things in Philly? Going well, Mike. We certainly have seen our fair uptick in cases just this past Friday. We had 1,100 in Philadelphia on one day, which was our highest positive diagnosis day in the past few months. We've opened up our COVID ICUs again, starting to increase and expand our ICU capacity. So definitely seeing an uptick in Philadelphia. Just south of you in Baltimore, we've had our 14th consecutive day of over a thousand new cases each day. We are seeing an uptick in hospitalizations and our state positivity rate has gone from under 3% to almost 7%. So as many of you have seen here in Maryland, we're starting to roll back into restrictions and we'll see where that goes in the coming weeks. Now, Rob, I'm going to turn to you, but we've got a big announcement for those of you that are listening, longtime followers of the podcast. We are happy to welcome Rob, and he is quite the celebrity. Speaking of COVID, he has an amazing new role that I'm going to have him update us on here as we begin this podcast. Rob. Well, thanks, Mike. Here in the Bay Area, we're holding steady. We have a slight uptick, I would say, but overall, we are not experiencing yet a tremendous surge. And thanks for the shout out about my new role. I'm very honored to serve on the president-elect and vice president-elect COVID advisory board. And I can promise you that we are going to get a lot of things done. And I am going to be advocating for emergency medicine, critical care, and all frontline providers across the board. So I'm very excited and optimistic about what we're going to accomplish in the near future. 
Congrats, Rob, on being named to that advisory board. It's really a testament to all that you've done, really, in terms of COVID and really all that you've done from an emergency medicine and critical care standpoint. So very much looking forward to seeing all the great things that you and the advisory board continue to do over the coming weeks and months with respect to COVID. So our thanks to you. Well, again, it's an honor, and I think it's a testament to the fact that the president-elect and vice president-elect are taking this seriously and recognize the critical role of frontline providers. Agreed. Well, let's get into our topic this month. And it actually, we're going to shift away from COVID and talk about cardiac arrest. And that is because just a few weeks ago, the American Heart Association released their updated 2020 guidelines for cardiopulmonary resuscitation and emergency cardiovascular care. This was an online publication. It's in circulation for those of you that want to pull the entire articles and the various parts of the AHA guidelines. But in essence, this is the 2020 update. And what we're going to do during this particular podcast is really drill down on the cardiac arrest component, that ACLS component. What are the critical updates? What are the current recommendations? And then in part two, we're going to then focus on any updates in post-cardiac arrest care with a focus on oxygenation, ventilation recommendations, along with TTM and post cardiac arrest cath. So that will be coming in part two. But to get us started here in part one, ACLS updates, cardiac arrest updates. John, can you give us the background as we lead into some of these discussion points? So in 2015, approximately 350,000 adults in the U.S. experienced non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And this trend has been somewhat increasing over the past few years. Approximately 10% of those patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survive to hospital admission, with approximately 8% surviving to hospital discharge with good neurologic outcome. Unfortunately, survival from out-of-hospital cardiac arrests has kind of plateaued since about 2012. The current paper is an update to the 2015 AHA guidelines and is designed primarily for healthcare providers in North America. So the guidelines are based on extensive evidence evaluation performed in conjunction with ILCOR and affiliated ILCOR member councils. And this is largely based on systematic reviews, scoping reviews, and evidence updates. Now, the AHA assigns a class of recommendation based on strength of and consistency of evidence and impact to patients. So this is the level of evidence based on quantity, quality, relevance, and consistency of the available evidence that's out there for cardiac arrest management. So just as a reminder, the class of recommendation, it largely goes from a one to three scale, a one being a strong class of recommendation. There's two A and B, which are moderate and weak respectively, and then a class of recommendation three being no benefit. And then there's also the level of evidence that we just spoke about, and that's an A through C scale, an A being high quality of evidence from more than one randomized control trial, a meta-analysis of high quality randomized control trials, or one or more randomized control trial that's corroborated by high quality registry studies. There's B, which is R, and then which is essentially moderate quality of evidence, and then NR, which is moderate quality evidence from one or more well-designed, well-executed, non-randomized study, observational studies or registration studies. And then there's C, which is basically a lower level of evidence that uses consensus of expert opinion or randomized, non-randomized, observational or registry studies. With this being said, there are 
are over 250 recommendations that are put forth in this update, two of which are supported by level A evidence. So still a lot of room for improvement and more research in this area. 37 are supported by level B evidence, 57 by level B non-randomized evidence, and then 154 supported by level C evidence, which is basically limited data and expert opinion. So of these updates, what we're going to hear is essentially a lot of limited data or expert opinion with a few supported by level A high quality data. Outstanding introduction, John. Thanks for getting us started on a great note. And all of our listeners know we're not going to go over 250 recommendations. We're really just going to touch on the highlights, what's new and what's persistent, and what are those key critical features in cardiac arrest management that really may yield improvement in outcomes, improvement in good neurologic status at hospital discharge. And overall, they still focus on those main concepts, especially for adult cardiac arrest. So rapid recognition, prompt initiation and delivery of high quality CPR, defibrillation for shockable rhythms, and then good post-arrest supportive care that we'll talk about in part two. Now, Peter, let me turn to you. We typically have taught this adult chain of survival, but there is something new. There's a new link in the adult chain of survival. Can you update us on that? Gladly, Mike. In the adult chain of survival, the new chain has been updated to include the critical role of our recovery and survivorship because it's traumatic, right? So trauma is defined by the patient's viewpoint. And so the recovery link highlights the recovery and survivorship journey from acute treatment of the critical illness through rehab for survivors and their families after cardiac arrest. So these are big pieces where we're being really a kinder, more compassionate approach to those patients who survive. That's a very important component. So now we've gone from five to six links in the chain of survival. Now, Rob, I'm going to turn to you next. I think we all know that CPR probably is, of any intervention, the single most important intervention for patients with cardiac arrest, with the exception maybe of defibrillation for shockable rhythms. Can you go over for us, so we're all on the same page with what is high quality CPR? What are the things we really need to pay attention to or observe if we're the team leader in those of our colleagues that are doing the compressions? Yeah, Mike. So again, CPR remains the single most important intervention for patients in cardiac arrest. You want to focus on at least two inches or five centimeters. You need to avoid excessive depths of greater than 2.4 inches or six centimeters need to recognize that you need to do it fast, 100 to 120 beats per minute or compressions per minute. You need to allow complete chest recoil, avoid leaning on the chest between compressions, minimize interruptions, no more than 10 seconds during a pulse or rhythm check, immediately resume compressions after shock delivery, avoid excessive ventilations, change the CPR compressors every two minutes. And if there's no advanced airway, a ratio of 30 to two compressions to ventilation ratio is optimal. Consider using and try to use quantitative waveform capnography to monitor your CPR effectiveness. And then it's reasonable to target a chest compression fraction of at least 60%. Additionally, there are other considerations. You want to perform CPR over the lower third of the sternum, 
The effectiveness is maximized in the supine position. And although the efficacy of CPR in the prone position is not established, it may be better than no CPR at all. And then it may be reasonable to use physiologic parameters such as arterial blood pressure or end tidal CO2, again, capnography, to monitor and optimize the CPR quality. The class of recommendation for this is 2B, and the level of evidence is C, basically. One analysis with the guidelines data showed higher likelihood of ROSC when CPR was monitored using end tidal CO2 or over-diastolic blood pressure. There's inadequate human data to support a specific diastolic blood pressure target. The validity of end tidal CO2 in non-intubated patients is not well established. But in general, end tidal CO2 values of less than 10 are associated with poor outcomes and greater than 20 millimeters of mercury are associated with ROSC. But there is a considerable variability in this literature. I think that is exceedingly helpful in terms of the basic and critical components of high-quality CPR. And we, even on the podcast, have talked about using an A-line in cardiac arrest resuscitation, targeting a diastolic blood pressure, and monitoring that patient with end-tidal CO2. But really, the current latest guidelines, as of two or three weeks ago, it's really more of a weak recommendation because we just don't have a specific diastolic blood pressure target. And then I think we would still use waveform capnography or end-tidal CO2, but understand that, as you indicated, there is variability in the cutoffs in the literature. Now, Peter, we're going to touch a little bit later on timing of advanced airways, but let me circle back to you. We're doing high-quality compressions, or one of our colleagues is, and then we're going to, say, ventilate the patient. Just starting from the very beginning of thinking about airway management, what are current recommendations, say, on opening the airway? Is there a an optimal technique, and when we're ventilating initially in cardiac arrest resuscitation, what are the current recommendations? Absolutely, Mike. So when we're talking about opening the airway, this isn't just establishing the airway, this is simply opening it. There's really no high-quality evidence that favors a particular technique, one over another, for establishing that airway. So a provider should use, they recommend, the head-tilt-chin-lift maneuver to open the airway of a patient when we don't think that there's been a cervical spine injury, right? And so the class of recommendation for that is a one, and the level of evidence is a C to EO. So it's not as good as you would think that it might be. In cases of suspected cervical spine injury, a healthcare provider should open the airway with a jaw thrust without any head extension. Again, class of recommendation is a one, and the level of evidence is the same at a level of C as well. Use of airway adjuncts. So the use of an oropharyngeal airway or a nasopharyngeal airway, you know, like dual exhaust for the nose and something for the mouth may be reasonable in unconscious patients without a cough or gag reflex to facilitate bag mask valve ventilation. And again, the class of recommendation there is only a 2B and the level of evidence is back to the C level. So here's one that's important just for the people who are a little bit more aged like myself, the use of cricoid pressure in adult cardiac arrest is really not recommended. That should not be done. And again, the class of recommendation there is a three. The level of evidence, again, is a C. They know that this maneuver may impede ventilation, and it can also cause difficulty with a supraglottic airway or intubation. It can mess that up. So there's also the increased risk of airway trauma during 
intubation for those patients, placing the endotracheal tube. So you want to avoid that. So again, no more cricoid pressure for your patient. It's a poor move and makes intubation far more difficult. And then once we do that, say head tilt, chin lift, or perhaps the jaw thrust, what are we looking at, Peter, in terms of ventilation ratio? Yeah, I think that this is important too. And again, when we're talking about the ventilation ratio, now that we've opened up the airway, for adults in cardiac arrest, tidal volumes of approximately 500 cc's to 600 cc's, or enough to see a visible chest rise, are reasonable. And this, again, is a class of recommendation a 2A and level of evidence a C. Now, it's important to understand that an adult Ambu bag, particularly if you're two-fisting, goes 800 cc's to over 1,100 cc's. So peds and boo bags may be a better fit for this, and they reliably give 450 to 600 cc's. So you want to also avoid excessive ventilation during CPR, and we've talked about that before because, you know, again, causing dynamic hyperinflation of the lung and impeding venous return. It may be reasonable for providers to use a rate of 10 breaths per minute to provide asynchronous ventilation during continuous chest compressions before the placement of an advanced airway. And again, the class of recommendation there is a 2B, and the level of evidence is a B. In an advanced airway is in place, right? So we've got an endotracheal tube or a supraglottic airway, and that's in place. It's reasonable for the provider to deliver one breath every six seconds during those continuous chest compressions. And again, class of recommendation is a 2B, and the level of evidence there is a C. And so it's important to understand the biggest thing I would stress is not, I repeat, not to breathe them fast, right? And so if you squeeze the bag and then say one 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000, four 1,000, five 1,000, six 1,000, breathe, everybody in the room wants to jump out of their skin, but that's the appropriate timing for ventilations. And I love that pearl about considering the pediatric Ambu bag. That's great, Peter. All right, John, turning back to you for another key component here. We've talked already about a number of high-yield pearls, but take us through defibrillation. What should I be reaching for, biphasic, monophasic, and has the AHA here in 2020 made a recommendation on double sequential defibrillation? Ah, yes. So the early defibrillation obviously is critical to survival for ventricular fibrillation or pulses VT. I think we all can agree on that. But really, there's no waveform, so biphasic or monophasic really doesn't matter, it seems, in terms of achieving higher rates of return of spontaneous circulation or survival. These two different waveforms are likely equivalent in terms of outcome. However, it does seem that biphasic defibrillators may expose patients to a much lower peak of electrical current. So defibrillators are with biphasic waveforms are preferred over monophasic in the treatment of tachyarrhythmias, and this is a class of recommendation 2A, level evidence B. A single shock is reasonable in preference to stack shocks for defibrillation. So this is kind of one of the things that I practice is instead of doing multiple higher doses of electrical current, just turn it up 200 joules and give them your best shot right off the bat, as opposed to these stack shock method, which may delay your return of circulation from a VT or VF. And pad placement, well, anterolateral, anteroposterior, and anterior left intravascapular and 
well, all over the place have comparable efficacy. It does not appear that one is necessarily better than the other based on this review. However, things you might want to consider are patients' body habitus, particularly whether or not they're female, have a large amount of chest wall tissue, a pacemaker, those types of things might guide your decision about defibrillator pad placement. Now, the question you asked, Mike, is the usefulness of double sequential defibrillation for refractory VF or VT. Effectiveness does not appear to have been established, and this was given a class of recommendation of 2B with a level of evidence C. Now, case reports are subject to publication bias. I think we all know that. I think many of us are excited to tell about our success stories, but tend to neglect those that don't fall that well. Observational studies really have not demonstrated a difference in patient outcome, which is important. And a 2020 ILCOR systematic review found no evidence to support double sequential defibrillation and recommended against routine use. So this review and these guidelines seem to have a somewhat negative slant on double sequential defibrillation. However, this is based on evidence. And I think when you're at the bedside, if your first approach is not working, it may not make sense to do the same thing. So while there may not be an established body of evidence to support this practice, I still personally would consider this if my initial shock does not appear to be working, my patient is in refractory VT or VF. But based on these guidelines, there is not enough evidence to support its routine use. And I think another therapy that is thought of, or at least written, and we've talked about perhaps in the past for refractory shockable rhythms, in addition to double sequential defibrillation, is the use of, say, an IV beta blocker such as Esmolol. And it may be somewhere in the guidelines in my read and review of this. I did not see that they came down and made a recommendation either for, against, or neutral in terms of that therapy. So perhaps with the 2025 update, we'll see some mention of that. Now, in terms of vascular access, there is some leaning more towards IV access over IO. And IO, I think all four of us and many of us listening to the podcast love IO access in terms of a quick intravascular access to allow the delivery of medications for whatever scenario that may be, but in the crashing patient thinking early about an IO. Well, in 2020, ILCOR did perform a systematic review, and many of you are familiar with that publication. It did suggest an association with better clinical outcomes when the IV route was established over the intraosseous route. Now, that was based upon five retrospective studies, and John, you mentioned this in terms of double sequential defibrillation. You know, those studies do have significant concerns for bias, so we have to keep that in mind. But really, this current 2020 AHA update really favors more and recommends it's reasonable for providers to first attempt IV access for drug administration over initially going straight to the IO. And they do give a class of recommendation of 2A, so moderate recommendation based upon a level B evidence from non-randomized trials. Now, certainly if you're unsuccessful in establishing IV access, then moving on to the IO access if, once again, IV access is unsuccessful. But really, a little bit more of a push towards trying to get IV access for the patient in cardiac arrest. Now, Rob, once we get IV or IO access, 
we're often thinking about vasopressor medications, namely epinephrine. And there's been some studies on, well, does the timing matter? Does it matter if it's shockable or non-shockable? What do these current guidelines say on vasopressor medication use? Yeah, Mike. So in terms of vasopressor medications, a systematic review concluded that epinephrine increased ROSC and survival to hospital discharge, but did not increase survival with favorable or unfavorable neurologic outcome when you looked at three months outcomes. Observational data suggests better outcomes when epinephrine is given sooner. And existing trials have used a protocol of one milligram of epinephrine every three to five minutes. In a recent systematic review on timing, earlier epinephrine in non-shockable rhythms was associated with increased ROSC, and it's recommended that epinephrine be given in cardiac arrest. It is recommended that epinephrine be given in cardiac arrest, and that's uh, core level one and uh, level of evidence B. It's reasonable to administer epinephrine one milligram every three to five minutes. Again, class of recommendation 2A for that one and level of evidence B for that. For non-shockable rhythms, it's reasonable to give epinephrine as soon as feasible. Class of evidence 2A and level of evidence, class of recommendation, excuse me, 2A and level of evidence C. For shockable rhythms, it may be reasonable to administer epinephrine after initial defibrillation attempts have failed class of recommendation 2B, level of evidence C. In terms of vasopressor medications, we kind of had generally disappointing results with the exception, I suppose, of epinephrine. And even then, it's not been demonstrated to have that much effect on three-month outcomes. Great review, Rob. And I think it's surprising that we still see a strong recommendation for epi, but perhaps leaning on some of those more recent trials we've reviewed here on the podcast that perhaps earlier epi in non-shockable rhythms may, and I underline may, and also state may not be beneficial. Now, Peter, going to turn back to you. In addition to epi, I think we hear a lot in terms of cardiac arrest resuscitations on other medications. And I think bicarbonate also often gets thrown out there. Let's give them an amp of bicarb or give them calcium, perhaps magnesium and some antiarrhythmics. Where do the current guidelines state or what are their recommendations here in 2020 on the use of other medications in the setting of cardiac arrest? Yeah, so we're going to lump that into a bin that's called non-vasopressor medications. So we know the vasopressor push, but for everything else, we'll see. Amiodarone or lidocaine may be considered for V-fib or persistent VTAC that's unresponsive to defibrillation, right? But don't get caught up in giving the drug and not shocking, shock the patient. And this, again, class of recommendation there is a 2B, level of evidence a B. Last formally reviewed in 2018, this demonstrated improved survival to hospital admission, but no change in overall survival to discharge or survival with good neurological outcome. That's important to understand. That's heavy duty. But it did demonstrate improved survival to discharge in a subgroup of patients who received bystander CPR in a witnessed arrest. So if that's your case, then you're really going to push for how important this is. But I think we just need to weigh it 
and understanding that it really, for the most part, if it's not bystander witness CPR, the results is that patient leaving neurologically intact, we're not seeing a difference there. The role of prophylactic antiarrhythmic medications on ROSC after successful defibrillation is uncertain. So that doesn't have to happen. So now let's talk about calcium. So the routine administration of calcium for treatment of cardiac arrest is not, I repeat, not recommended. Class of recommendation is a three. The level of evidence is a B. So we're going to say no to calcium. Let's talk about sodium bicarb. So the routine use of sodium bicarb is not recommended for patients in cardiac arrest. Again, class of recommendation there is three and the level of evidence is a B. So let's ask about one of my favorites, magnesium. So here we go. The routine use of magnesium for cardiac arrest is not recommended. Class of recommendation there is a three. Level of evidence is a B. So what about if we combine two? What about if we give calcium and bicarb? And again, they can be considered in special circumstances such as hyperkalemia or in drug overdosages. So you want to think about particularly bicarb in any of the go-fast medications, whether it's cocaine, amphetamine, methamphetamine, ecstasy, those kind of agents, something that will widen our QRS. You'll see with two amps of bicarb, a narrowing of that when we're overcoming the sodium fast channels. Thanks, Peter. I think that's really important because so often we see and we may even be calling for an amphibicarb or calcium. And in the undifferentiated patient with cardiac arrest, there really hasn't been shown to be any benefit. And as you just said, AHA 2020 guidelines not recommending the routine use of those medications unless we feel it's strongly due to hyperkalemia or a drug overdose. So important, important updates there. Now, John, I'm going to turn back to you. We have talked a lot about the utility of -of point-of-care ultrasound in many critical illness and resuscitation states. We love it here on the podcast, but I'm afraid how the AHA, what is going to recommend here in 2020? Can you take us through the updates that they have on ultrasound and cardiac arrest? Sure, Mike. So 2020 hasn't been a good year for us, nor does it appear to be a good year for ultrasound and CPR. So basically they recommend, and this is interesting because I think your University of Maryland may have had a little bit of a hand in supporting this recommendation. So largely, if an experienced sonographer is present and can use the ultrasound without interfering with cardiac arrest treatments, then certainly ultrasound may be considered as an adjunct for standard of patient evaluation. But really, the usefulness of ultrasound and cardiac arrest has not been established. There's a growing body of literature, but certainly it's not enough to make a broad swipe recommendation. And in fact, they do mention that point-of-care ultrasound can identify potentially reversible causes of cardiac arrest in PEA, for example. However, as we've learned, ultrasound is also associated with longer interruptions in CPR. So another distraction in what we do know works, which is high-quality CPR. So if you can do it without interfering, fine. But if it's getting in the way, it's not recommended and maybe interrupting the things that we know help or actually work. Some other things such as routine ABGs during CPR really don't have much of a certain value. And then this is one I think we've talked about before, using end-tidal CO2 to 
estimate quality of CPR and whether or not increases may in fact detect ROSC during compressions, particularly doing hands-on CPR continuous chest compressions, looking at your end tidal CO2 when doing your routine checks as a estimate of whether or not you've had ROSC. So studies have found that increases in end tidal CO2 greater than 10 may indicate ROSC, although no special cutoff value is really indicative of ROSC when it has been identified. So we give the number of 10 and that's based on the evidence that's published, but there might not be a specific value that we've identified just yet. Outstanding. And yes, John, we and the group at Highland published in Resuscitation a few years ago, our single center sites demonstrated that at least when we were using ultrasound and cardiac arrest, and we could video and record all these times, we more than doubled hands-off time on the chest. So interesting that in terms of the AHA coming down and weighing that it's maybe useful, but we haven't really demonstrated an efficacy in the literature just yet. But we've got just three other quick areas for updates, and then we're going to bring this podcast or part one to a close. Peter, you talked to us about the updates on opening the airway, and there's a lot on advanced airway placement, but perhaps what are the key messages on this round of updates for advanced airways? So I think it's important when we start talking about advanced airways to really look at the evidence here. And again, either a bag valve mask or advanced airway may be considered during CPR for adult cardiac arrest in any setting, depending on the skill set and the situation of the provider. And again, this is class of recommendation, a 2B, level of evidence, a B. So again, it's not a have to. It's not like everybody has to die with a plastic tube in their trachea, right? And then secondly, if advanced airway placement will interrupt chest compressions, providers may consider deferring insertion of the airway till the patient fails to respond to initial CPR and defibrillation attempts or obtains ROSC. Again, class of recommendation there is a one, level of evidence is a C. And we understand that even RSI drugs or the active intubation can cause people to code. So they're in a perilous situation there. So we have to stabilize them to the degree that we can before attempting an airway. I mean, so I would be very, very cautious with that. I would be pushing first for defibrillation and rapid reversible causes before making sure that I had to intubate the people, particularly if it's going to interrupt CPR at all. It's a bad idea. Great pearls, Peter. Thanks. Rob, in terms of CPR, you told us about high-quality CPR, all those numbers we should be keeping thinking about as we're performing CPR. But let's just say, you know, we may not have the staff. A lot of us have moved and actually purchased mechanical CPR devices. What does the AHA here in 2020 say on mechanical CPR devices? Yeah, Mike. So in terms of alternative CPR techniques, the routine use of mechanical CPR devices is not recommended. That's class of recommendation level three and level of evidence B. The use of mechanical CPR devices, however, may be considered in specific settings where the delivery of high quality manual CPR may be challenging or dangerous to the provider. As long as the rescuer strictly limits interruption in CPR during deployment and removal of the device. That's class of recommendation 2B, level of evidence C. And so I think what they're trying to say here is that as long as you minimize the interruptions, these devices are okay. And so in terms of 
those long transports and situations where you're going to have a long period of time where you're going to need to be doing CPR in a rig or so forth. I think that as long as you minimize those interruptions during deployment and removal of the device, that's okay. Yeah, I think so too, Rob. It's very, very reasonable. All right, here we go with the final section before we bring this part one to a close. John, I'm turning back to you because we're going to talk about eCPR and AHA update on eCPR. Should we be developing our programs and put a lot of effort into eCPR? All right, Mike. So I actually find this one to be slightly ironic in that, hear me out. Uh, So Based on the guidelines, there's insufficient evidence to recommend routine use of eCPR for patients with cardiac arrest. And I agree with this. You know, eCPR can be considered for select cardiac arrest patients with whom the suspected arrest cause is a cardiac etiology or potentially reversible during a limited period of mechanical circulatory support. And this was given a class of recommendation of 2B level evidence C. Now they write, there's no randomized control trial on the use of eCPR for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest or in-hospital cardiac arrest. Now, at the time of writing these guidelines, that was probably true. However, at the AHA conference in which these guidelines were also presented, they also released the first randomized control trial for the use of eCPR for cardiac arrest. And this was the arrest trial, which I'm sure we'll cover it in an upcoming podcast by the group up in Minnesota of Dimitri Yiannopoulos, where they found a significant improvement, and I won't go into the details, but a significant improvement in their small cohort of randomized subjects for neurologic, intact neurologic survival. So to be continued, but what they included in these guidelines were 15 observational studies that were identified for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that varied in inclusion criteria, eCPR setting, and study design with many studies reporting improved neurologic outcomes, and the vast majority were from single centers. So the decision, the guideline recommendations were the decision to perform eCPR should be made on a case-by-case basis. And I think these recommendations are fair. However, it is exciting to see some upcoming trials and better data to suggest that in a highly coordinated community, there may be an opportunity to improve cardiac arrest survival. Outstanding way to wrap this part one of our podcast series here on the AHA updates, John. So my thanks to the three of you. That was really outstanding. And I think for all of us, regardless of our practice setting, we encounter patients who have cardiac arrest, mostly out of hospital cardiac arrest, but also we are taking care of in-hospital cardiac arrest. And I think the pearls and the recommendations, those key recommendations that we've gone over during the course of this discussion here are incredibly helpful and incredibly useful. Peter, let me turn to you for any final thoughts before we close out. I guess we just need to really consider our standard practice and what things do we need to do, like hard, fast CPR, chest compressions, and don't interrupt them, and what things are kind of like-tos, you know? How are we managing the airway? What are we doing that might interrupt our CPR and limit those things? That would be what I would focus on. Well said. Rob, final thoughts? Yeah, I think that, again, these guidelines are very helpful. I'm a little surprised at some of them and wonder whether they've taken into account some of the 
very, very, very recent literature. So again, I think they're useful, but I still think there is room for play in following some of these guidelines. Yep. And John, your final thoughts. Well, certainly I agree with everyone in the sense that these are guidelines, and I think these are designed to provide a framework for cardiac arrest care across the United States. But we all work in different facilities with different capabilities and different levels of resources, which affords us the opportunity to not only do the basics well, but potentially consider some advanced therapies. So I'm not a teetotaler here, and this is how I practice. I think that it provides me a nice framework for education and teaching of providers and to make recommendations for many people who practice out in the communities and at lower resource centers. But locally, you know, I look forward to seeing more emerging evidence on how we can advance the field of cardiac arrest care, both clinically on a local basis, but in the literature. Well said. Well Once again, my thanks to the three of you for an outstanding discussion, bringing us up to date on the 2020 AHA ACLS updates that are hot off the press and still just online only that just published in circulation. As the four of us and as all of us here listening to this podcast, we are confronting significantly rising COVID numbers, perhaps not yet for Peter in New Orleans, but certainly many other areas around the country and the world have had that spike as we predicted in COVID cases. So we want to thank all of you first and foremost for once again, your courageousness at being on the front lines and taking care of these patients and certainly wish you all safe holiday season upcoming. We know it's going to be different than other years and every other year. But nonetheless, be safe, be well. Rob, congrats so much on this advisory board position. We know you're going to do great things in the coming months and really help us to turn the tide from COVID and get through to the other side of this pandemic. So our thanks to you for all the work that you have done and will be doing over the coming months. If you have any questions for us regarding the content of this podcast, please shoot us an email through our website. But we're going to close things out here, and we very much look forward to talking to you for part two post-arrest updates from the 2020 AHA guidelines. Bye for now.